Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with George Parker. George Parker is the political editor of the Financial Times. I think it's only fair, George, to, to specify t- uh, to our listeners that this is being recorded around midday on Thursday, the 19th of July, because events are happening so quickly in British politics at the moment that by the time people listen to this, things might have moved on dramatically. So that's that. So let's start with, if I may, George, asking you, Finally, the, the, the government, Mrs. May, the Prime Minister, has come forward with this finally white paper on its proposal for how to en- engage with the European Union post-Brexit. What is the status of this white paper and, and, the, and the checkers communique? Well, I mean, the re- first thing to say is that the remarkable fact is that two years after Britain voted to leave the EU, the British government has only just decided amongst itself what it wants to get out of Brexit. Um, this was the white paper thrashed out at a ministerial summit at Chequers, the Prime Minister's country residence on July the 6th, which then turned into a white paper a few days later. And um, look, the white paper is the basis on which Britain hopes to negotiate an exit deal, a future relationship with the European Union. But the important thing to say is it's only the start of a negotiating position. In my view, she has basically moved about 60% of the way along the road that she'll have to to get a deal in Brussels. She's going to have to make a lot more concessions to Brussels in the weeks to come, weeks and months to come, leading up to the October summit. So the the white paper has been published. There's been a bit of speculation that is the white paper now in danger? Is it dead in the water? Because the government had to accept a few amendments to some Brexit legislation this week from some Eurosceptics, led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, the arch-Brexiteer, which on the face of it appeared to toughen up the negotiating stance she set out in the white paper. But I think probably with a good lawyer, you could probably just about argue that the white paper is intact and that will form the basis of the negotiations that the Brits hope to take forward. Well, you say the white paper's intact, um, but and you talked about also about the concessions that, that she may have to make vis-a-vis the EU27, but media coverage to date uh, th- about this week's uh, shenanigans in the, in the House of Commons is about also about the concessions she's kind of made to her to her backbenchers. And so uh, surely some of the amendments that Rhys Morgan and his, and his acolytes in the European Research Group have managed to get adopted do actually undermine the, the white paper to a certain extent. Well, you have to take... take that as a, as a starting point because you had a minister of the government Greg Clark the business secretary saying in the morning that the government was going to oppose these amendments so right. in the afternoon the government announced they were going to accept them and that they were totally compliant with the white paper but I think it's a bit easy to over overstate the amount of damage it's done to the white paper there were there were four amendments tabled by the Brexiteers one specified there couldn't be a customs border in the Irish Sea well that's already government policy there was another one which um, said that you'd have to have primary legislation if Britain wanted to enter a customs union. Well, that would have to be the case in, in any event, and the government doesn't want to join a customs union with the EU. There was something about the VAT arrangements with the EU, quite a technical one, but I think the government can circumnavigate that. And the fourth one was the most problem- problematic. It was one which said that the British government couldn't collect tariffs on behalf right. of the EU and, and remit them to Brussels unless the EU agreed to do that on a reciprocal right. basis. Now on the face of it that seems impossible because the EU is never going to agree to apply British tariffs at its ports and hand them over to London. That's off the table and in fact the government's white paper says that's off the table. But there is an argument which says that the way the government's formulated this there'll be a tariff revenue collection formula which would decide how much tariff was due from the EU to the UK and vice versa, that it has a reciprocal element to it. Sorry, this is a bit boring and a bit technical, no, but you could, you could argue that the, gov- the government's white paper just about survives intact. It's embarrassing um, for the government, but I think probably the, the meat of the white paper is still there 
as a starting point for the negotiations. Okay, we have the starting point then, fine. But you did say earlier that uh, Mrs. May will have to make further concessions to, to, to Brussels, quote-unquote, uh, along the, the negotiation path. So what kind of things do you think the EU27 will take exception to? Well, before she published the White Paper, Theresa May went on a little tour of European capitals, including to The Hague and to Berlin, pleading with European leaders not to give a hostile reception to the White Paper. She couldn't afford to be fighting on two fronts at the same time with right. Eurosceptics and the Europeans. And the initial response, public response at least, has been vaguely encouraging, that um, hasn't been dismissed out of hand. But privately, you speak to any EU diplomat, and they'll say that a lot of what's in the White Paper still smacks of have your cake and eat it. Right. Um, the splitting up of the single market, for example. Um, not accepting that um, you'll have to have free movements or budget contributions and trying to divide up goods from services. So there's a lot of dividing up the single market, which I think the European Union will find hard to accept. So I think going into the end stage of the negotiation, what will happen is that Brussels will bank the proposals in the white paper and say, yeah. fine, but we want, in addition to that, something which looks very much like free movement. We're going to want billions of pounds of budget contributions. Uh, how have you dressed it up? Basically going into the European uh, budget. And I think they'll probably want some more ECJ oversight over the whole arrangement as well. And those things are going to be difficult for Theresa May to sell to a party. Some of the Eurosceptics are already saying that the Chequers proposals go too far. A year ago, just to have the general election, given that the result came out and Mrs May didn't get the majority she was hoping for, the, the commentary broadly saying that, well, one thing this general election the result has, has, has shown or has given us is the fact that no deal scenario, no deal Brexit is off the table. It seems to be back on the table. Everybody seems to be talking about it as a distinct likelihood or, or at least a possibility. Do, do you share that view? initial reaction to the white paper led many people to conclude that a no deal was starting to look more likely because basically the Prime Minister has to get this deal approved by the House of Commons and you've got Conservative MPs saying that they will reject the deal. Basically they say the Chequers has already gone too far. If Theresa May has to go even further in negotiations with Brussels, which she will, how can she possibly get Parliament to vote for it? And the assumption in number 10 Downing Street is that the Labour Party, the opposition, will vote against the white paper, or the deal, sorry, on any grounds because they want to bring the government down. So the assumption in number 10 Downing Street is you have to get the whole Conservative Party, ranging from the pro-Europeans of Anna Soubry and Dominic Grieve right. to the extreme Eurosceptics of Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, to vote for this package. And therefore, that seems unlikely. Then are we going to end up with a no-deal outcome? I still think it's unlikely that will happen because the Prime Minister said this herself, that probably the alternative to Parliament not voting for a deal is that Parliament will then probably vote against a no-deal exit as well because of the economic chaos that would be unleashed if that happened. So stage one is Parliament could well block Theresa May's deal. Stage two, the Labour opposition will put down a motion in Parliament and say we cannot leave without a deal at all. That would probably be carried as well. And you end up in a situation where Parliament can't agree on either a deal or no deal, and you're deadlocked. And in those circumstances, Theresa May, I think, would have no alternative but to ask the EU to extend the two-year Article 50 process while she tried to sort things out. Or more likely, I think in these circumstances, Theresa May would be toppled as Prime Minister. And then we're into a limbo land. So in those, in those circumstances, all bets are off. So we will get to this limbo land. I want to rewind briefly for my benefit. So are we saying in effect that of all the different scenarios out there, there's no, there's no single scenario which would command a majority in the House of Commons? That seems to me to be quite likely. Unless... Theresa May wins a colossal game of chicken with her own party in the, in the autumn because her calculation has got to be that she will tell Eurosceptic MPs the alternative to supporting my deal is the possibility that Brexit won't happen at all. And she will challenge people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson to vote for it on those grounds. And the Tory right is split on how they approach this. So you have some Eurosceptics like Michael Gove, mm. Liam Fox, 
Dominic Raab, the new Brexit secretary, who've decided they're going to stay in the government because they think the important thing is actually to make sure that Brexit happens. You get Brexit over the line in March 2019, and then you can improve the terms of the deal after you leave. You have other people like Boris Johnson, who made quite an impassioned resignation speech this week in the House of Commons, saying that as absolute nonsense. You can't break the bone, as he put it, and reset it after we leave. You've got to get it right first time. And that's the big division. Now, if Theresa May can somehow minimise the number of Eurosceptics who vote against her deal, possibly get a, across to her side a few Labour Eurosceptics to vote for the deal, right. she might just about be able to squeak it over the line. But at the moment, I say that's reasonably unlikely. Well, you mentioned this idea of extending Article 50. That seems to be, as of this week, gaining a bit of currency. It wasn't mentioned un- until until now, it seems to me. Uh, but a couple of questions linked link to that, obviously. First of all, th- that leaves the, r- the agreement, doesn't it, of the E27, any extension of Article 50. How likely is that agreement being to be forthcoming? Question one and question two. What what would the government hope to achieve in that, in that extension of Article 50? Why is it just prolonging the agony? Well, the first question is a good one. Will the EU agree to it? It has to be agreed unanimously to, to put the Article 50 process on hold. My guess is that the EU would probably be prepared to entertain an extension to let the UK government sort itself out, especially if the alternative looked like it might be some sort of chaotic departure, which would be damaging economically to the EU side as well as particularly to the UK. But what, you're right, what would be the point of doing it? Well, in the event that you end up with Parliament unable to agree on any course of action, no deal or a deal, then Theresa May would have to do one of two things, I think. The first thing would be she would be under pressure to, by some people, have a second referendum on the terms of the deal. And that's been proposed by Justine Greening, a former education secretary this week. The idea you'd have a three-question referendum. Right. Either you have support Theresa May's deal, or do you go for a no-deal exit, or do you not have Brexit at all? So that's a way of reversing the referendum results, of course. The other alternative for Theresa May would be to, say, go to the country and have a second general, another general election and say basically fight the election on the deal she struck in Brussels. Again, that raises the possibility of Brexit not happening because Theresa, the Tory party could fall out of power, Jeremy Corbyn could become Prime Minister, and although Jeremy Corbyn has signed up to Brexit, I think it's entirely possible that an incoming Labour government would say, hang on a sec, Brexit is a Tory project, we are an incoming Labour government, we've got other priorities that are more important than wasting all our time on Brexit, including sorting out the health service or schools or whatever, and parking the Brexit process under the extended Article 50 process for a while. Again, the possibility that Brexit in the end doesn't happen. So that's the nightmare scenario facing people like Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg. If they don't support Theresa May's deal, the possibility is you don't get Brexit at all. And this idea of a, of a relatively early general election, that's, that's, that's a, a distinct possibility? Well, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Um, but if Theresa May concludes that the only way she can actually make Brexit happen, to deliver her manifesto commitment, is to do that, then I think in the end, that you, I mean, you, you would conclude that with the Conservatives... She just, she just calls it like she did last so year. Yeah, I mean, people say, well, that, that we do have a fixed-term Parliament Act which specifies five-year parliaments. But ultimately, if the governing party and the opposition party agree that they want an election, then you can have an election, as we, as we found in 2017. So I think it w- would require Theresa May to say, we have to have an election. And then, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn would grasp at the opportunity. But it's hard to see what other way out of it you could get. If Parliament can't decide on any yeah. way forward unless you just park Brexit indefinitely, which may be the desired outcome of quite a few people, um, 
then you that that an election or another referendum seems to me to be the only way forward. And bri briefly on the Labour Party, do you see any signs that the Labour Party's position, because people say quite uh, quite rightly many circumstances that Labour Party's position on, on, on Brexit is just as vague as sometimes as a fudge as the, as the Conservative Party's position is. So do you see any signs of more, should we just call it clarity euphemistically, on the Labour Party side about its, view, its attitude towards Brexit? I, w I would say that clarity would be overdoing it. I mean, no is the simple answer to that. You're, you have a ludicrous situation really where the Labour Party, the majority of Labour voters um, supported stay, Britain staying in the European Union, but the Labour Party is led by um, a Eurosceptic, essentially Jeremy Corbyn and uh, John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor. So, you know, if you try and distill what Labour's policy is, it seems to me that they do want Brexit to happen, but on softer terms than the Tories. So quite, quite an important point the Labour Party would negotiate for Britain to stay in a customs union and from that flows quite a lot of, um, uh, sort of elements of a more business friendly, softer kind of Brexit. Having said that, there's, Jeremy Corbyn is also under pressure from the left of his party, from Momentum, which is this, this faction of the Labour Party, made up of a lot of a young, idealistic... Who are pro-European, right? Who are much more pro-European, who are putting pressure on Jeremy Corbyn to say we should, Labour should actually campaign for a second referendum and ultimately to overturn the Brexit uh, decision. Because it's a very generational thing in the Labour Party as well. You might get sort of older Labour voters who are quite traditional, who might support Brexit, but the vast bulk of people who've joined the Labour Party since Jeremy Corbyn became leader are young people who are passionately opposed to, to Brexit. And right. they're starting to rumble the fact that Jeremy Corbyn has become an accomplice to a Tory Brexit. Okay, a final question, George. Um, I know you're not in a pr prediction game as such. I won't ask you to predict the future, but I will ask you, in terms of different scenarios we've been talking about the past 15 minutes, hard Brexit, soft Brexit, no deal Brexit, uh, extension Article 50, um, people's vote, uh, so on. So what are the, what are the kind of relative uh, probabilities you attach to all these different uh, competing scenarios? <laughs> well, I think I still think it's most likely that Brexit will happen and that Theresa May's deal will end up just about squeaking over the line because I think enough conservative Eurosceptics will realise it's the only game in town as far as they're concerned. I think if that doesn't happen, and I think there's, uh, let, me, let me put the chances at no more than 40%, I think the, um, the second likely outcome would be, most likely outcome would be a general election, mm -hmm. very uncertain consequences. Let's put that at 30%. Second by, by, the, by the end of the year or next I spring? I guess it would have to be a, next spring, the okay. extension of Article 50. Okay. Let, let, then let's put that well, 70%. Let's put a 20% a, <laughs> a second referendum. Um, and then let's put a 10% possibility that all hell breaks loose. Total chaos. Total chaos. Queues <laughs> all the way up the M20 from Dover to London. No food in the supermarkets. Planes falling out of the sky. <laughs> mass starvation on the streets of Britain and all the rest of it. I think, <laughs> I'm being facetious, but I mean 10%, I think the, the total and utter... Um, disorderly Brexit is, a, is at least an outside possibility which is one of the reasons why both sides are making preparations for it. Okay, we have to leave it there. George Parker, thank you very much for your time.